Tony Katz. This is Kendall and Casey. The Hammer and Nigel Show. All right, well, when does your show start? Do we know? I feel like I've been promoting this for nine years now. This is the Tony Kinnett Cast on 93 WIPC. Hey, welcome to the Tony Kinnett Cast here on 93 WIBC. I'm Tony Kinnett, and we need to have a conversation about this weird controversy. And it's incredible there's a controversy at all surrounding a guy named Aaron Bushnell. So Aaron Bushnell uh, was a 25-year-old U.S. Air Force airman who made the uh, decision to set himself on fire outside of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., uh, while he was in uniform, by the way. And he did this, uh, he said, in protest to the United States providing aid to Israel in the ongoing Israel fight against Hamas uh, in the Gaza Strip. As a reminder, on October 7th, Hamas, the terror organization that runs the Gaza Strip, with mass approval from the people in the Gaza Strip, by the way, launched a terror attack that was widely covered from the extremely pro-fundamental Islamic network Al Jazeera all the way to American publications on live video as this terror organization went into Israel and raped over 1,200 women and children, and not just Jews, and not just Israelis, but also American citizens, also uh, citizens from Germany, from Poland, from the Netherlands, and then took hundreds of hostages back into uh, the Gaza Strip, where, again, Gaza Strip civilians civilians turned a blind eye and did nothing. And uh, by the way, in payment for their friendship and service, uh, the Hamas terror network then proceeded over the next several months to steal every single scrap of food and every drop of water that was distributed uh, via international aid. And Israel responded and literally formed a left and right wing coalition government, the kind of thing that we haven't seen since World War II to take to task uh, the thing we haven't seen since World War II being unity governments like in the United Kingdom taking to task this effort of removing Hamas, which had been killing Israeli citizens for nigh on 20 years at this point, since almost 20 years since Israel completely pulled out in 2006, 18 years ago. And this airman, Aaron Bushnell, uh, who is was very openly a socialist far left-wing group, again, the the kind of weird red Marxist and a green Islamic alliance here in the United States and abroad, uh, sympathizing for what they say is this huge injustice and genocide towards Palestine. Oh, it's oh, oh my gosh, it's genocide. Even though Israel has done more, according to objective studies, not at all associated with Israel or the Jews, more than any other military group in human history, Israel has made every single effort to get civilians out of harm's way in any military operation because, again, Israel is absolutely in the right to go after the terrorist organization Hamas. 100% in the right. And by the way, allow me to just put this in perhaps an analogy as I used to do uh, with perhaps more nebulous subjects uh, when I was a teacher. Imagine for just a moment that in your neighborhood, there was an individual who went to a house in the neighborhood and murdered and raped the family. Then this individual, this man, let's say, then goes back to his house 
and locks all of the doors and hides with his wife and his children and hides behind them so that when the police team shows up, when the SWAT team shows up, no one can get a shot at this guy without potentially hurting the people in the house. And according to the free Palestine individuals who really want to cease fire and the Democrats and the members of the squad and, and this imbecile who we'll talk about in just a second who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy, apparently everyone is just supposed to stop and, and, and just let it all go. Yeah, sure, they committed a lot of heinous, terrible crimes, but they're, they're hiding behind civilians. So, like, you know, the, the guy's hiding behind his family, so you can't really do anything to him. And so then over the next couple of weeks, while this man hides in his house, again, keeping his family as, as bullet shield hostages, everyone says, well, I mean, you can't just, like, cut off food and water from the house, forcing these people to come out. That would be really inhumane. What about the children? They need to eat. So then you drop off packages of food in front of the house. And then the, the husband actually steals the food and the water from his family so they can't eat, and he's still using them as, as bullet shields. And oh, by the way, every, every couple of nights, he also then leaves the house and kills and rapes more people and then goes back and hides behind his family. That's what Hamas has been doing for the last couple of decades. And is continually doing, by the way, by, by throwing rockets into southern Israel. And I, it just, they're supposed to take it? Oh, well, it's, it's really their fault because see, Israel's just being really mean to Muslims. Muslims enjoy more rights in the state of Israel than any other Middle Eastern country. And again, we've been asking for, again, decades, more decades than just the Hamas problem, if there's any other country in the Middle East that would like to take the Palestinian people and run that small region. And Egypt said no, and Saudi Arabia said no, and other countries around there said no, absolutely not. Because people from the Gaza Strip region, when they are in a separate region, this, this Shia Muslim group, they destabilize the government. Because fundamentalist Shia Muslims are not a culture like Sunni Muslims, like the majority of Muslims in the United States. They are insane. They believe insane things about the Quran and about the... the the religion of Islam. They have openly stated from the Houthis in Yemen to Hezbollah north of Israel to Hamas in the Gaza Strip that they desire to kill any Jew, any Christian, and any American or member of Western civilization that they can. And they explicitly state those three groups. None of that is paraphrasing. Again, the, the entire motto of the Yemeni Houthis are, and I quote, death to Israel, death to America. Period. And and I, so Aaron Bushnell, this this serviceman for for the U.S. Air Force, he made the decision to set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy. And people are what what shocks me. First of all, people need to understand what happens when you have an individual who who was an avid socialist and a Marxist who religiously believes, religiously believes in the intersectional nonsense that is perpetrated by the left. Many of us have spent the last 10 years telling you very specifically this kind of leftist ideology that believes in intersectionality and systemic oppression and all of this other nonsense around the world. It is a religion to these people. And when people believe very deeply in a religion, they do very stupid and insane things. I've heard a lot of people 
on the right, on the left, in the center, saying, oh, this guy was just, he was clearly very mentally ill. We, we shouldn't talk about this. You know, we really just had some kind of a mental illness, and that's what drove him to do this. No, a mental illness is not what drove Aaron Bushnell to commit suicide by lighting himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy. That's not. And anyone who tells you that is either ignorant of the situation or is willingly lying to you, or option three, they are just plain stupid. Aaron Bushnell very clearly illustrated in the things that he said between when he was screaming when he was on fire very clearly wanted to be a martyr. He wanted to convince the world. And by the way, you can see this echoed on social media. We'll talk about this in just a second. He very clearly wanted everyone to think that this was some kind of a grand protest that the United States was complicit in genocide of the Palestinian people, which by the way, not only people on the left have been saying, I will remind you that individuals like Tucker Carlson on the right told Egyptian journalists that the United States has been complicit in horrific incidents throughout history, like bombing Dresden was some kind of a collective evil or bombing Japan. Ooh, it's evil. Oh, if you if a civilian ever gets hurt in a war, oh, that's that means you're complicit in collective punishment. I'm sorry, but for those of you toddlers who do not understand how foreign policy and war work, there are indeed civilian casualties in war. Because when governmental organizations place critical infrastructure and military installations in civilian areas and use human shields, it is the government who put organizational buildings Inside civilian areas, it is that government's fault when civilians die. In the illustration that I used earlier, the guy that was hiding with his family after committing heinous crimes, it is his fault if his children get shot when SWAT team kicks in the door. And by the way, I will remind members of the right that flirt with this kind of, oh, Israel is really the bad guy logic, that whenever it is a lady who tries to shoot at police while holding her child in front of her as a shield... And then the cop grazes the child while the cop shoots the mother holding the shotgun. All, all of a sudden, it, it, it's, in, it's like in black and white. Everyone understands that it's the mother's fault for holding the child as a human shield. That it's the mother's fault the child got injured and putting the child in harm's way, not the cop that shot her. Again, wielding a shotgun at the cop's direction. But all of us, oh, a child, oh man, I can't believe a children died. I will remind you that, again, yet again, that in the Gaza Strip region, and we have... People from the Gaza Strip openly told Al Jazeera on live interviews repeatedly that Hamas steals their food and their water. And we have multiple videos from multiple outlets and independent journalists uploaded from IP addresses that are not from VPNs, clearly defined in the region of southern Israel and the Gaza Strip. In other words, absolutely genuine from the best that we can tell. That people from the Gaza Strip are going up to the Israeli Defense Force and begging for food and water because they are starving and they are dying for thirst. And Hamas is shooting civilians that are going up because the IDF forces are taking in refugees from the Gaza Strip and are feeding them and are giving them water. So, yeah, clearly this is kind of, this is a both sides kind of a conflict. Oh, yeah, very, very, very important. That when individuals like Aaron Bushnell from this Marxist fundamentalist Islam alliance band together and do these wild stunts, it is for martyrdom. And by the way, it is the exact kind of intersectional critical race theory goobers who believe in this kind of nonsense that are promoting it. Let me give you an example. Cornell West. Cornell West is a former professor 
who I met a couple of years ago when I attended an education conference in Annapolis. He was formerly doing a speaking tour with Princeton professor Robert George, who is a brilliant professor who happens to be a conservative and a phenomenal historian. And they were doing this kind of of speaking to around the country to prove to people that individuals on the left and on the right could have normal conversations and that we could reach some kind of consensus because we all cared for the soul of America. There is no longer any shred of decency of any of that kind in this man. Here is what Cornell West had to say about a man who set himself on fire outside the Israeli embassy. Let us never forget the extraordinary courage and commitment of brother Aaron Bushnell. I swear, I... Oh, the the weird Christian fetishizing that the intersectional left does with people who do crazy, insane things. Anywho, brother Aaron Bushnell, who died for truth and justice, died for truth and justice, makes him sound like like a veteran who died in combat. I pray for his precious loved ones. Oh, by the way, the guy left two kids behind. Aaron Bushnell left two children behind who, who wonder why their dad isn't coming home because he had no choice. Because he, who, who maybe he left the U.S. Air Force and, and, and started decrying it on national media, say, I refuse to be a part of a government. No, because he set himself on fire to fake being a martyr. He says, let us rededicate ourselves to genuine solidarity with Palestinians undergoing genocidal attacks in real time. First of all, if Israel wanted to commit genocide in the Gaza Strip, they absolutely could. Israel's air superiority, they could completely carpet bomb the entire area. There would be not a soul left alive. Israel has nuclear weapons that do not have to create massive waves of of fallout and other kinds of nonsense. This is beyond silly stupidity. And there are comments like this from Hoosiers. There's a a lady named Erica, the white trash socialist. I will never stop speaking, Aaron Bushell. He is one of the braves among us and used his position in American society to force the mainstream to cover his act of protest. He was not mentally ill and committed suicide like individuals who are despondent. He wanted to be a martyr. And by the way, the fetishism of of martyrdom from the left continues when organizations like Time Magazine released an article following Aaron's insane suicide, talking about other brave acts of self-immolation protest in history. One of the examples that they talked about, this is according to Mary Margaret over at the Daily Signal, is uh, Time Magazine pointed out self-immolation was also seen as a sacrificial act committed by Christian devotees who chose to be burned alive when they were being persecuted for their religion by Roman emperors around 300 AD. Okay, let's talk about martyrdom, for instance, uh, for just a moment. What is martyrdom? Martyrdom is not committing suicide. When Gandhi went on a hunger strike in India, he was not acting as a martyr. He chose to do an act to himself with no external pressure. Food was not withheld from him. He chose to not eat and said, to show my commitment, I am going to do this. And then the British government relented, which was kind of insane. Aaron Bushell is not a martyr. He chose to set himself on fire. There was no one keeping him in the United States Air Force. He would have leave the Air Force. They'll let you leave. Discharged right then and there on the spot. We're not at war. The United States military is voluntary. Get out. You don't believe what the United States is doing? Get out of the military. No one, that, that's why it's suffering from such severe recruitment issues is because people don't believe in certain things that the military and the Department of Defense is doing anymore. 
He wasn't forced into this. And, and, and the reason I bring this up is because Christians were martyrs during this time, not because Roman emperors allowed Christians to set themselves on fire, but because Roman emperors set Christians on fire. Martyrs occur when people take action against others. One of the reasons, we talk about this in politics all the time, you don't want to make a martyr out of someone. Making a martyr out of someone, you can't make a martyr out of yourself, guys. We talked about, so so fun example here, to make it very close to home and transparent. If I would have resigned from teaching at Indianapolis Public School, I would not have been a martyr. I would have chosen to have left. But by Indianapolis public schools openly firing me for criticizing things that we were told not to tell parents or teachers, I was made a martyr in the education system, to, to use the, the loosest definition of the term. That's how, that's how the relationship works between the martyr and the, the, the individual that is, that is making the martyr. Aaron Bichelle's not a martyr. And by the way, I want to make this very clear, extremely clear, and that is one of the reasons why we are taking so much time on this issue. If there are people, socialists, Marxists, and Shia Muslims, especially in places like Pittsburgh and in Dearborn, Michigan, who are more than happy to celebrate and praise a man setting himself on fire, they are more than willing to praise and congratulate people for committing suicide bombings and taking Jews or Christians with them. Like the socialists and, and Marxists who praised Audrey Hale for the Nashville shooting, the, the trans person who killed the individuals in the Christian school, the, the children and, and the teachers. Like the people who still praise terror attacks from the 90s and the early 2000s. Because revolutionary Marxism and revolutionary Shia Islam is a threat. Not all cultures are created equal. There are certain cultural things that are very, very, very dangerous. And let me explain this quite clearly. Just as dangerous as wanton white supremacy is, Shia Islam is just as despicable and dangerous. And radical Marxism and socialism are just as despicable and dangerous. When you start saying that an individual is good or bad based on their member of an immutable characteristic group, like being black or white, and saying there are innate cultural characteristics because of the color of a person and not because of, you know, the culture that you engage in, you will end up justifying truly horrible and evil things. And I guarantee it, mark my words, this kind of behavior and celebrating an individual who set himself on fire for no reason, it did nothing, doesn't hurt Israel at all. Doesn't hurt the United States military at all. But praising acts like this will lead to praising horrible, destructive, and evil violence that is currently openly being called for. And when individuals ask why I spend time advocating in the, the political space, especially regarding the education of children, and why I don't want certain ideas praised and glorified in public classrooms on the taxpayer dime, this is why. Because we have gangs of children in public schools that are beating children up on the playground for not saying things like Black Lives Matter in Ohio. Or a Jewish teacher in a Manhattan high school who was in her classroom for hours before the police showed up because there was a gang of students outside who wanted to lynch her for being Jewish. 
This stuff is real. It is right now in the United States. It is in no way, shape, or form some kind of right-wing fear-mongering conspiracy theory that this is at your doorstep. And anyone who tells you that we either need to stand in some kind of solidarity with Palestine or we need to stand with these oppressed peoples and they have to make up situations because there isn't even any kind of evidence to support the things that they're saying. It is the exact same kind of critical race theory rhetoric that says that black people in the United States are, are always going to be oppressed because white people exist, which is absolutely atrocious and disgusting. That when we tell you those things are going on, then we show you evidence of them for you to either say we need to join them or we need to ignore them like a lot of isolationist philosophy. That you are single-handedly ensuring that that group has that much more of a foothold when they bring it to your neighborhood. Again, some of the people that I'm citing are from Indiana, in Indiana right now in the Midwest. The Students for Justice in Palestine group from Butler University who said, not a victim, not a crime, regarding the rape of Israeli women and children days after the October 7th attack. That's in your backyard, and it will continue to be so until it is rooted out and gotten rid of. These people should not be given power, they should not be given time in front of your children, and they should never, ever, ever, ever receive the, the support of a single cent of your taxpayer dollars. Up next, we're going to be talking to Stephen Kent regarding some of the chaos uh, surrounding the things going on at Disney at the moment. A lot of big changes happening. You are listening to the Tony Kinnecast here on 93 WIBC. It's the Tony Kinnecast on 93 WIBC. Hey, welcome back to the Tony Kennett cast here on 93 WIBC. I'm Tony Kennett. This is Stephen Kent from the Consumer Choice Center from Geeky Stoics and Bounding Into Comics. It's a privilege to be with you this fine evening because there's big doings over at Disney. And whenever there's big doings in any kind of media, we bring on Stephen Kent. So break some of this down for me, my dude. Oh, man. Heads are always rolling over there, I swear. So the latest out of the Walt Disney Company, the happiest, happiest place on earth, so we've been told, is that Sean Bailey, uh, the executive who has been at the helm of their uh, live action adaptation division. So his job has been to help translate all of their uh, animated film projects into blockbuster live action remakes. And he has been at this now for 14 years. Well, Sean Bailey is stepping down. He is out. Um, and he has no intentions to stay with the company. It is an icy departure uh, at best. You know, it's just one of these things where he's not like saying in his press release, oh, you know, I've really enjoyed my time here. Really great things happening, but right. I'm going on to greener pastures. No, he's, uh, he's packing his bag and he is leaving. I wonder if it had something to do <laughs> with Snow White. I, I think it probably did because, I mean, Snow White, The Little Mermaid, all of the other re-releases and live actions and recreations that he had his fingers in, if not overseeing those things directly. I have yet to hear of one of those re-released live action films that can even hold a candle to the original and even more so was something that people really wanted. I, I mean, I hated all the way back to Aladdin. I couldn't stand it. 
I, I don't know if you're of the same. Oh, no, I'm, I'm completely there with you. I mean, Aladdin. So Aladdin and Lion King were my favorite movies growing up. Those were mm-hmm. the, like the Disney movies that I enjoyed the most. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jafar, big fan of Scar. Uh, Mufasa had it coming. And just the idea that we would do a live action version of these characters completely uh, bathed in CGI as if that counts as live action. This is not what people want. They love these movies and nostalgia draws us back to what it is that we appreciated about those original animated films. And it is not this cheesy ham-handed overly animated live action that Disney has become so acquainted to, not to mention uh, just kind of the woke crap that they are always weaving in and out of their storytelling. Right. And one of the things that I think is most important to note is the where remakes like this come from, because they don't just pop out of thin air. Uh, remakes are, there was an actual purpose for remaking something and even remaking something into live action, because we have actually reached a point in media where we can do some incredible things with CGI and it is really, really impressive. A remake, a total remake for a piece of media only is necessary when the original media is perhaps either slightly poorly done or wasn't retold or wasn't told correctly the first time or the technology was out of date. This is especially true in video games. And this is the key thing. A lot of people want Mm -hmm. Fallout New Vegas to be remade because the story of that game in a post-apocalyptic Nevada was incredible. But there were some bugs. The technology wasn't quite there yet in some ways. That would be appropriate for a remake. Another case in point for a good remake. Disney has, well, Star Wars has re-announced the Star Wars Battlefront 1 and 2 games that came out in the early aughts. Mm -hmm. And people are excited about those. What people aren't excited about is things being remade that were already fine. Aladdin, originally, the animation was phenomenal. The golden age of Disney animation, but not to mention the brilliant voice acting of Robin Williams, Gilbert Gottfried. (laughs) Yeah. It's not the the same without The legends of of the 1990s. And yeah, it it should always lead you to ask, why do we need to remake certain things? What was the un- realized potential of the thing that was originally made that could have been better, uh, but Mm. your live action remake is going to truly elevate to the next level. Unrealized potential. That's a really great way to frame that. Like, uh, like, um, like the movie AI. Oh yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic example. And, you know, one here for me that was coming to mind when you were talking about things that you just can't quite do with certain versions of an adaptation. Remember the success of the Pokemon Detective Pikachu movie? So oh, yeah, this was true. this was a blockbuster effort, uh, not from Disney, from a different studio. I can't remember which one, um, but this was an effort to say, all right, we're going to have a Pokemon live action movie, uh, but we don't really know how to do the saga, the Pokemon story as people know it from their video games. So instead, we're going to tell a story set in the Pokemon universe where, <laughs> where Pikachu is a detective voiced by Ryan Reynolds. People loved it because it did something novel, fun, unexpected, and and fearless. Like it, it was mm-hmm. actually an adaptation that was a little bit risky because, yeah. and I'm gonna I'm gonna end here, but 
because when you play a video game like Pokemon, everybody's experience was different. I played Pokemon on the Game Boy different than you played it. And on the so, Game Boy Advance. Yes. And so when we all go and watch that movie, we all have different headcanon about exactly how Pokemon should go. Which sort of creatures the main character should keep on their person? Are you a fire type, a water type? So you got to remove that kind of stuff from video game ad- adaptations. Um, Disney has just not been able to figure out how to be innovative. They're stuck on the remake death cycle. And the re- remakes that they do do that are somewhat interesting. I think one that could have been warranted is actually Snow White, and they just couldn't help themselves uh, from injecting woke racial swapping politics into it. Mm-hmm. On with Stephen Kent from the Consumer Choice Center, as well as Geeky Stokes and Bounding Into Comics for this week's segment of What You Watching here on the Tony Kinnick cast on 93 WIBC. I gotta say, though, mm-hmm. I'm I think that we've seen this before in a way that many individuals. So for those of you out there in the audience or listening on the podcast that might be over the um, aughts video game hump, you didn't you know, play a lot of video games and, and that's kind of a medium you're unfamiliar with. Video games are the defining art form of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. They are. And they are the biggest uh, financial market in entertainment today, passing music and movies in almost every annual gross. Uh, The reason that I bring video games up is because uh, the company Electronic Arts. Electronic Arts, around the same time that Disney was still good, used to have a policy on the company level of elevating artists. They, they They were to take artists with really great ideas, and then they would channel kind of big league resources into these small, fantastic ideas and these small studios that they would hopefully elevate to greater heights. And for a time, they produced really great content. And I think that's what we saw with Disney, which is that there was a time where they took really great stories that had a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of a risk factor to them, maybe an interesting way to tell the story. And they did really cool things. And EA and Disney fell into this corporate money regurgitation. Like if you make it, you know, people will consume that just doesn't work anymore. And that's why I believe that we are finally starting to see some people get the boot because Disney's not the only player in the game anymore. Just like EA is no longer the only player in some types of game development. Well, you know, the Disney golden era, the 1980s, 1990s were largely from Walt Disney Company focusing on, in large part, the tales of Hans Christian Andersen and Mm. classical folklore and myth from all around the world. And so whether it was The Lion King, whether it was Aladdin, uh, Snow White, or, you know, of course, actually, the, the end of this period is Frozen. Frozen represents the end of an era with Disney where they were looking to classical folklore for story ideas, because that, of course, comes from The Snow Queen mm-hmm. by Hans Christian Andersen, a, a 19th century fairy tale. Uh, they were telling a story that people felt like they knew in their hearts already. Mm. You grow up feeling like you already know those classical Disney stories because the 
archetypes, the characters and the motifs are so seated throughout the popular culture that you just recognize it. It's like, it's like the, the, the water to the fish, right? You're just raised in it. Uh, but right now, Disney is at the end of it where they go, Oh, we don't have any values. We don't have any culture and we don't believe in any sort of higher moral system that our audience should be trying to learn their, their virtues from through story. So we're just going to do remakes, except we're going to make them worse <laughs> and, yeah. and rip out all of the elements of Western canon uh, that might define those stories. So this is one of the things that I thought that Encanto both did really well and really poorly. And then also uh, the, um, oh, my wife is, is going to kill me for not remembering this one, uh, where the, the kid on the Day of the Dead goes into uh the land of like the skeletons and like tries to find his dad. Oh, I love that movie. And I'm, I'm also blanking on the name. Sorry. <laughs> Anywho, two, two really decent movies, uh, actually kind of exploring a little bit of Hispanic and Latin American, uh, mythology and Coco. some interesting stories. Coco. Yeah. Coco, Coco. Thank you. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. It's Lots a, of it's fun. A it's a beautiful movie. Yeah. Pollo Loco is a, a song that I, I rather. But isn't, enjoy. isn't that like kind of it, right? You have Encanto and Coco were the two notable standouts in the new era of Disney that were exceptional. And they were pretty much doing like Latino marketing right there. And mm. there's something to be said for that. There's a huge audience for mm. uh, la uh, Latino stories and stories that come from Central and South America. And, you know, again, like traditional American audiences are also interested in those sort of ethnic folk tales. And that's the thing, though, that people do not understand, at least a lot of people on, on the coast do not understand, especially in the Midwest and the, and the Great mm -hmm. Plains areas of the United States, the affinity and affection that so many have, regardless of the, the prominent American culture, for Hispanic culture and folklore. It's it's beloved. It is beloved from Appalachia to the Rockies. And mm -hmm. again, when you you can tell really good stories again, just like Aladdin was an Arabian folktale, like you can bring in a lot of phenomenal ideas into literature and storytelling that may not start with uh, people always accuse individuals of wanting these whitewashed fairy tales it's like no, yeah. some of the most successful animated stories have nothing to do with well white people yeah it's how you tell the story and i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna hijack the segment to kind of take us in a hopefully not a different direction but like i have been re-watching and writing a lot lately about the zorro movies and oh. and to and to your point yeah i mean middle america loves these sort of latin infused stories that come from central and south america it is a huge part of our own american history this closeness to the southwest and to mexico and you know the last zorro movie was in 2005 a great story about a you know a freedom fighter in the times of westward expansion mm -hmm. you know sitting at the the division between the old spaniard regime uh, and the rise of you know what we know today as a free Mexico. Um, but, you know, we had like this amazing moment where we were actually telling stories like that. And Zorro movies have been getting made since 1940. And that's because of our affinity for that part of the world. I'll make I'll, I'll expand on that just a little bit and say that, again, the America's affinity for also the, the mysticism and the, the deep history of the Middle East. And this is where we got movies um, like The Mummy, like Indiana Jones, mm -hmm. um, even Kevin Costner's Robin Hood began in the Middle East with Morgan Freeman saving uh, Kevin Costner's Robin Hood uh, <laughs> from an execution. Seriously, there yeah, were so yeah. many 
beautifully injected points of history. And you see the same thing with Native American cultural history as well. There's this idea that like before 2012, we just didn't tell stories that involved other cultures at all. And any stories that were told were all these super racist depictions of, of, of savages next to the white man. And that's just not the case. And that there were some really beautiful stories that were told in an attempt to get people who had never experienced some of this folklore and some of these cultures and some of these stories to kind of a, kind of let them in the door, kind of say, Hey, mm -hmm. there's some really cool things about this culture. Why don't you come in and, and sample some of the great pieces of art that humanity has produced? That's why remakes in today's modern landscape are so worthless. They're not about capturing the, the beauty of what some of the eighties, nineties and aughts were about and in, in sharing cultures through media. It's, it's this kind of a cash grab of, like you said, this key jangling nostalgia. Which is why there is now on Netflix a live action adaptation of Avatar The Last Airbender, one of the uh. most one of the most popular Nickelodeon animated series of the early two thousands, which experienced a massive renaissance during COVID nineteen when it was added to Netflix and Gen Z and Gen A kids, like young kids, were exposed to this for the first time. Now, uh, because again, they smell money because it, it took off and now kids love Avatar The Last Airbender again. They opened Paramount Studios within Nickelodeon uh, and Netflix produces a series as quickly as possible. And I've got to tell you, I just finished it. Uh, I just finished the Avatar The Last Airbender series and it's just a complete waste of money, time, and energy. I, I don't understand why this was made because- You would think, this, you'd think that's an edgy take, but yeah, it's- it, it's not. There was uh, sorry. Fin finish your no, point. Just, I'll, I'll, there I'll was, jump in after. There you. was all this. There was all this hand wringing about the botched attempt by M Night Shyamalan to produce uh, his own Avatar: The Last Airbender movie. Uh, but you know, I got to hand it to M Night. His two hours of garbage Avatar: The Last Airbender movie was merely two hours compared to eight hours of I'm avatars. Sorry. I'm also going to argue series. that, that, and I can't believe I'm saying this, the visuals of the landscape with M night Shyamalan were so much more beautifully produced. I'm sorry. I, I the, the grand landscapes that, that swept things over were, were more well done. But again, USA today, New York times, everyone is just offering these middling, middling garbage reviews. And I would have thought that after Netflix tackled an episodic approach to the uh, unfortunate event series by Lemony Snicket, which was dear, very dear to my childhood. And I was so excited mm. to see them remake what I thought was an abomination, that movie with Jim Carrey. Um, I def just, as, again, as a fan of the books, I would have thought that Netflix would, at least in some of their studio episodic works, not make the same mistakes, but they cut out everything good. Again, Sokka's character development, Aang's character development, Katara's character development, the people in the world, they're going to like, we're going to tell this gritty Avatar story. It's like, why? <laughs> why? Because we live in an adult's world now where the entire entertainment establishment is obsessed with catering to the kids from yesterday and forcing the kids of today to enjoy adult content. Um, which, you know, that's a broader commentary on a lot of the culture war that we have going on in this country. But space for children to be children is being destroyed. Space to create premium content for children is 
to also is also been destroyed because there is children's content that's being created in a lot of ways, but it's just low tier. Look at the dancing fruit on the screen trash. Oh, they're kids. They don't, they don't need it. We, you and I can go on forever. We'll have to dig into this more next week because <laughs> there's more information about ratings regarding children's shows, even the beloved bluey that mm -hmm. are not too good on the horizon. Stephen Kent, consumer choice center, bounding into comics and geeky stoics. Thanks for hopping on, man. Thanks a lot, Tony. Thanks for tuning in to a slightly different episode of the Tony Kinnecast. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to leave us a five-star review over at Apple Podcasts if you enjoyed the episode. And if you didn't, then you stay away from the Apple Podcasts page. We really don't want your thumbs or your one-star reviews anywhere near it. We'll see you tomorrow. This has been the Tony Kinnecast on 93 WIBC.